After his awakening, the Buddha was reluctant to teach. He thought, these people are addicted to their lifestyle. For people who are addicted to their lifestyle, it's very difficult to understand this important point. Itapataya Chapatija Samapada, which we could translate as this, that conditionality dependent origination. He also thought there were other important points, and we'll get to those later, but that was the first point that he thought was important. And he's quoted in Majjhima 38 as saying, one who sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma. One who sees the Dhamma sees dependent origination. So dependent origination is really the heart of the Buddha's teachings. If you want to really understand what the Buddha was talking about, then that means you really want to understand dependent origination. <clears throat> Mostly when dependent origination is taught in the West, it's taught as the 12 links of dependent origination. Carolyn Reese Davids, who was one of the early translators from Pali into English, referred to the 12 links of dependent origination as a curious old rune. Uh, they're a little difficult to understand. Uh, you got 12 links, but next to the last link is birth, and the last link is old age, sickness, and death. You know, birth usually comes at the beginning. I mean, I mean, I'm guessing every one of you, the first thing that happened to you was you got born. You know, it's not like the next to the last thing that happens to you. So, and there are other kind of difficult things to understand about the 12 links. It appears that the 12 links of dependent origination is the last version of dependent origination. There, there were a number of recensions of dependent origination before it got to the 12 links. And so rather than jumping in with the most difficult version of dependent origination, I thought it might be interesting to start at the beginning. Of course, that raises a question, what's the beginning? Okay, so the Buddha's teachings are preserved in five different collections, the long, the middle, the connected, the numerical, and well, the Kutika Nikaya, the miscellaneous collection. In the Kutika Nikaya, there's a collection called the Sutta Nipata, the little Sutta collection. And in book four of that, there are 16 suttas, and most of them appear to be very early material. Early in the sense that the Pali that's used there uh, seems to be early ways that Pali was used. You can tell the difference between Shakespeare's English and modern English. You know, you read something from Shakespeare and you know, yeah, this is older stuff, right? Uh, the scholars, the Pali scholars, can do the same thing with Pali. And so book four of the Sutta Nipata appears to be early material. And from what we read in there, it appears to have originated early in the Buddha's teachings. 
he's not depicted as having a lot of followers or monasteries or anything like that. He's mostly a solitary wanderer in that collection. So we have early material in the sense that it was probably composed early and not altered, and early material in the sense it comes from early in the Buddha's teaching career. And in that collection, the 11th Sutta, so Sutta Nipata 411, appears to me at least to be the original dependent origination sutta. The sutta is entitled Quarrels and Disputes. And someone asks, why are there quarrels and disputes? And the answer is because people find things endearing. In other words, quarrels and disputes are arising dependent upon people finding things endearing. This, of course, only raises the question, why do people find things endearing? Because they're desirable. Why are things desirable? It is said in this world, it is pleasant, it is not pleasant. What do the pleasant and the unpleasant depend upon? The pleasant and unpleasant arise dependent upon sense contact. What does sense contact depend upon? Namarupa. Namarupa is an interesting word. It literally means name and form. Often in dependent origination, we find it translated as uh, mind and body or mentality and materiality. Uh, not bad. Uh, it seems to have a broader meaning. It could be thought of as uh, concept and manifestation. If I say to you, cell phone, right, that's a concept. If I wave this in front of your face, that's the manifestation. Okay, so cell phone concept. And here's the manifestation. <clears throat> but we can think of it as mind and body. Okay, so quarrels and disputes arise dependent on endearing, arise dependent upon desirable, arise dependent upon pleasant and unpleasant, arise dependent on contact, arise dependent on namarupa, mind and body. This is not so difficult to understand. Uh, in fact, we could take quarrels and disputes and generalize it to dukkha. Dukkha arises dependent upon, well, the endearing. Things you find endearing, you tend to hang on to that stuff. You cling to it, right? And the things you cling to, well, they're desirable. In fact, if you're clinging to it, you could well be craving it, right? And the craving or desirable things, they arise because when we get sense contacts, we experience Vedana. Vedana is often translated as feelings, but uh, feeling in English often as the connotation of emotions. Vedana does not mean emotions. It's your initial categorization of a sensory input. 
And the choices for Vedna are pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. If you're looking for an English word to translate Vedna, you can use valence, provided you know what that means. If you have a background in chemistry or something, then yeah. It doesn't mean the thing above the window. Okay, that's also called a valence, but that's not what it's referred to. It's just your initial categorization of a sensory input. So quarrels and disputes or dukkha arises dependent upon that which is endearing or that which we're really hanging on to, clinging to, which arises dependent upon what we find desirable or the stuff that we crave. And we crave things because they're pleasant or we crave for the absence of things because they're unpleasant. And these Vedana, they arise due to sense contact. Modern neuroscience says that within one tenth of a second after getting a sensory input, you will decide whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. And what the Buddha is saying is pay attention to your sensory input. Don't let the pleasant run off into craving and clinging because that can lead to dukkha. I assume you're all familiar with the Four Noble Truths. First Noble Truth, dukkha happens. Second Noble Truth, dukkha arises dependent upon craving. Right? This is dependent origination in a very short form. Two links. Dukkha is dependent on craving. But in dependent origination, we find that craving arises dependent on the Vedna. And the Vedna are the result of sensory input. And sensory input is just part of having a mind and body. Now, the standard form of dependent origination is not quarrels and disputes, endearing, desirable, pleasant, unpleasant, contact, namarupa. The standard form uses different words. But the teaching found here is also found using the more familiar words of dependent origination as well in the suttas. As I said, we find 12 links, but we also find 11 links and 10 links and 9 links and 7 links and 2 links. And it depended on to whom the Buddha was speaking and what he was trying to teach him as to the amount of detail he went into. So if we were to put the Sutta Nipata 4.11 into the standard form, it would be dukkha arises dependent upon clinging, which arises dependent upon craving, which arises dependent upon Vedna, which arises dependent on, upon sense contact, which arises dependent upon mind and body. This is probably a little easier to understand and a little easier to see the importance. Remember, the Buddha said, all I teach is dukkha and the end of dukkha. That's from multiple suttas, for example, middle length discourse number 22, you can find him saying that. So what he's trying to teach is how to get out of dukkha. <laughs> we, we want a lot of other stuff from our spiritual practices. Um, most spiritual practices have some idea of how the world began 
and what's going to happen after death and all this sort of stuff. The Buddha is saying, yeah, all I teach is dukkha and the end of dukkha. And it's important to remember that's what he's teaching. So this pattern of your dukkha arises dependent on your craving and clinging, which arise dependent on your vedana, which is a, a, a sufficient, uh, where, where contact is sufficient to make the vedana arise, is really important to keep in mind. The second establishment of mindfulness, second foundation of mindfulness, is mindfulness of Vedna. Uh, if you were to ask me which of the foundations of mindfulness I thought was the most important, I would pick the second establishment of mindfulness. Because the idea is pay attention to your sensory input. You will be experiencing pleasant and unpleasant and stuff that's neither. Don't get caught in craving and clinging when you get pleasant Vedana. Don't get caught in craving and clinging for the absence of whatever generates the unpleasant Vedana. These are a setup for Dukkha. Now, it's very important to remember that teachings on dependent origination are teachings on necessary conditions. It's not that craving causes dukkha. The Buddha didn't often speak of causes. He mostly talked about necessary conditions. Everybody familiar with the concept of necessary conditions? Like for the light to be on, a necessary condition is the light switch is on. If I want to turn off the light, all I need to find is a necessary condition I can manipulate and I can turn off the light, right? I don't have to understand the cause of the light shining. <coughs> the, the light switch doesn't cause the light to shine. The light shines because of excited electrons emitting photons. That's the cause of the light. But a necessary condition for the electrons to get excited and emit photons is the light switch being on. It's not a sufficient condition. The power lines have to be intact, right? And the, the company has to be pumping out electrons from the power plant. I could blow up the power plant if I wanted to turn off the lights. Uh, not recommended. I could cut the, the lines to the house if I wanted to turn off the lights. Again, not recommended. But there's an easily manipulatable necessary condition called a light switch. And so I can turn that off. This is what the Buddha is teaching. Okay, it's not easy manipulatable, but craving is a necessary condition for dukkha. If you don't crave, there won't be any dukkha. And so the dependent origination is all about, yeah, how do you get out of your dukkha. Well, you identify necessary conditions for the arising of dukkha and turn them off or prevent them from happening. Okay. You're going to have to get sensory input. <laughs> you need it to survive. You can't find food or clothing or shelter without sensory input. 
So you're going to get sensory input and it's going to generate Vedana. Hopefully some of the Vedana is going to be pleasant. You know, nice, delicious Indian food or whatever. Okay. It's pleasant. Enjoy the fact that it's pleasant, but don't get caught in the craving and clinging around it. A cool breeze is pleasant. Don't get caught in the craving and clinging around it. Just enjoy the fact that it's pleasant. Because if you get caught in the craving and clinging and the cool breeze stops, uh, you're going to be upset because now it's hot. Right? So basically, the Buddha's strategy is to pay attention to your sensory input. If it's pleasant, enjoy it. If it's unpleasant, deal with it. But don't get caught in craving and clinging because that's a setup for dukkha. All right. This is the links of dependent origination in detail and the essential nature of them. Okay. This is what you want to keep in mind whenever you're studying dependent origination. <clears throat> or at least the links of dependent origination. There's the general principle of dependent origination. This arises dependent on that. If that doesn't happen, this doesn't happen. But we can see that being exemplified in the, the links of dependent origination. Now, as I mentioned, the 12 links is the most common way that it's taught, and it uses different words. So you might be wondering, why was the switch made from the words found in Sutta Dampata 4.11 to what we find in the 12 links, which occurs all over the place? It turns out there is the Vedic hymn of creation and the understanding that goes with the Vedic hymn of creation. The Vedas predate the Buddha by centuries. And of course, they describe how the world comes to be. And they used similar ideas to dependent origination for a different end to describe how the world came to be, right? And it <clears throat> appears that the words that the Buddha chose originally sort of morphed into these more familiar words. Remember, the majority of the Buddha's monks were Brahmins from the Brahmin caste. The caste system was just getting going at the time of the Buddha. And so if you were a Brahmin, you learned the Vedic hymn of creation. And so somebody along the way changed the words from Sutta Nipata 4.11 to match the sequence that's found in the Vedic hymn of creation. And so we wind up with the 12 links of dependent origination. And there what we have is dukkha or old age, sickness and death arises dependent on birth. Well, this makes sense. If you don't get born, you don't experience any dukkha, right? That, that's really obvious, but not so helpful because I can tell every single one of you already got born. You know, it's not, it's not going to be a way out of dukkha to not get born. All right. So, okay, that's true. Birth arises dependent on becoming. Uh, 
we can see that happening in the spring. You know, there's this urge to become. The birds are doing it. The bees are doing it. The flowers are doing it. Right? This mother nature has this urge to reproduce. I mean, any species that didn't reproduce, yeah, it died out. In America, there was a religious sect called the Shakers. And they, they made beautiful furniture and they had really good spiritual practice, but they were all celibate. Guess what? Don't have any Shakers left. This urge to become is there for successful evolution. So yeah, birth arises dependent upon the urge to become. Becoming is said to arise dependent on clinging. This, this little link here is a little bit obscure. This is part of the curious old rune aspect because <clears throat> either the becoming is because you're clinging to being alive and when you die because you're clinging so much to being alive you have this urge to become and you get reborn that's the orthodox understanding of that but i'm not sure that really makes well good sense we'll see in the next talk why i say that another way of looking at it is becoming well, look at the building you're sitting in. It's made of wood and glass and metal. And at one point, there was just a bunch of metal and wood and glass lying, well, right next to where the building is, right? And then they made it all cling together and it became a building. So the clinging led to becoming. It's a... Uh, well, it's part of the curious old rune because there's a shift in the word becoming, the meaning of the word becoming to make that link work. As I said, this was not part of the original. And it just gets a little weird when you start throwing in some of this stuff. If we take dukkha arises dependent on clinging, that makes sense. I mean, think about all the cool stuff you're clinging to. Oh, right. We're all clinging to stuff. What if it disappears? Yeah, you're going to experience dukkha. That's pretty easy to understand. The clinging arises due to what we crave, what we find desirable. Craving and desire are used synonymously in the suttas. Some suttas, when you start reading it, you expect the word craving, but what shows up is desire, or expect the word desire, and what shows up is craving. So they're used pretty synonymously throughout the suttas. And once something is desirable or you are craving it, you really want it and you get it, then you're clinging. The clinging is focused on me as the possessor of the object. And the craving is focused on the object and I want to get it. So craving, I want to get it. Clinging, I've got it. Right. And both of these are set up for dukkha, because if you crave something and don't get it, oh, that's dukkha. Or if you crave something and you do get it and then you lose it, that's dukkha. Or you get it and then you worry about losing it. That's dukkha. So there, there are lots of setups for dukkha with the craving and clinging. 
They don't cause the dukkha, but they set you into a position. Sometimes we crave something, we get away with it. I don't know, you crave some chocolate ice cream. You go to your refrigerator, there's some chocolate ice cream left and you eat it and you enjoy it and it's no big deal, right? It's, it's not that craving causes dukkha. Well, I mean, the extra pounds that you put on because you eat chocolate ice cream too much, yeah, that's dukkha, but never mind. <clears throat> okay, so the things that we crave, the things that we find desirable, are the things that are pleasant. Or sometimes we're craving for the absence of something, something we find undesirable. And that arises because of the Vedna, the pleasant and the unpleasant. Uh, in America, I can say a word that normally you would only think of if you're playing cards. And for, well, all of my friends, it will produce unpleasant Vedna. I could say a different word in your country, and it probably would produce unpleasant Vedna there. The word, of course, is your least favorite politician, right? You hear the, the name of your least favorite politician, and immediately there's dukkha, right? It wasn't the sound of the word. It was your downstream processing of it and it turned out to produce unpleasant thoughts when you heard the name of your least favorite politician and that led to dukkha right one of the things that's really important to understand when the buddha says i teach dukkha and the end of dukkha is that he's teaching the end of your mental dukkha there's an important sutta in the Connected Discourses in Book 36 and Sutta number 6. And in that sutta, the sutta is called the, the dart or the arrow. And in that sutta, the Buddha says that an uninstructed whirling gets hit by a dart and gets upset. And that getting upset is striking them selves with the second dart. So the first dart represents unpleasant physical vedna. You stub your toe or something like that. <coughs> he goes on to say that an enlightened one experiences the same unpleasant physical dukkha, but does not get upset, does not strike themselves with the, same, the second dart. Right? So yeah, if you become fully awakened, uh, you're still going to have to deal with the unpleasant Vedana if you stub your toe, but you won't get upset about it. We know the Buddha had a bad back. Sometimes he would turn, he would give an introduction to a Dharma talk and he would turn to Sariputta or Moggallana and say, please elaborate. I need to lie down and rest my back. And so he would go lie down and Sariputta give the Dharma talk. And when it was over, the Buddha would come back and say, if I'd given the talk, that's exactly what I would have said. The Buddha had a bad enough back that sometimes he couldn't give the Dharma talk. It was producing enough unpleasant Vedana. He couldn't give the talk, but it didn't upset him. He just dealt with it. Sariputta give the talk, right? 
That's why it's so important to play, pay attention to your Vedana. What the Buddha is promising with awakening is that when you experience some unpleasant five sense input, you won't get lost in the downstream sixth sense mind input. In other words, your thoughts and emotions that arise due to the unpleasant physical Vedana will not lead to the unpleasant mental Vedana. You'll be free from the mental Dukkha. So when you hear the name of your least favorite politician, right? The, the name itself, that sound is probably not that unpleasant. It's your reaction to it that's unpleasant. And you're craving for that politician to no longer be in power. And yeah, that craving is a setup for Dukkha because your least favorite politician is in power. If your least favorite politician's not in power, well, you probably find somebody else to be your least favorite politician. Okay. So the dukkha is arising dependent on our craving and clinging. And that's arising dependent on the Vedna. And the Vedna arise from sense contact. Five sense contact through your five senses, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, right? And six sense contact, your reactions to those five sense contacts. What the Buddha is saying is when you get a five sense co contact, don't let it run off into craving and clinging. It's going to produce pleasant or unpleasant Vedana. That's just hardwired. But you don't have to do the craving and clinging bit. And then in the 12th link, dependent origination, it says that the sense contacts are dependent on the six senses. And of course that makes sense, right? And the six senses are part of having a mind and body, Namarupa. A functioning mind and body arises dependent on consciousness. If you have a mind and a body, but you're not conscious, uh, you're gonna need to become conscious sooner or later, or otherwise, yeah, you're gonna die. If you don't become conscious, that's in a coma. And well, they can keep you alive now with tubes and so forth, but eh, it's not really alive. Uh, you're just existing, right? So you need the consciousness. Consciousness arises dependent on Sankaras. Sankara is a really important word to understand if you want to know what the Buddha is talking about. It gets translated in many different ways. Often independent origination, you see it translated as karmic formations, uh, which is a terrible translation. Uh, you see it translated as conditioned things, uh, a little better. Uh, best translation would be Tanisaro Bhikkhu's fabrications or Santikaro's concoctions. I, I like both of these because they have the sense of not quite true. You know, you fabricated some story about coming home late because you had a flat tire, right? Or you concocted some story about, right? So Sankara 
Sankara is the object of your consciousness. But as we'll see with emptiness, the object in and of itself, like cell phone. When I say cell phone, you know what I'm talking about. It's a nice concept to use, but it doesn't fully under explain what's going on. It doesn't explain the silicon and the plastic and the metal and the glass and the rubber case and the sweatshop in China and all the rest that went in to make this. It's, well, it's not the full picture. That's why it's a concoction. It's a created thing, but when we're conscious of a cell phone, we're not usually conscious of all that goes into it. I mean, when your phone rings, do you think, oh, the silicon and the metal and the plastic are interacting with me? No, you just pick it up and go, hello, right? And Sankara's arise dependent on ignorance. We're ignoring the concocted nature of the concoctions. The fact that everything is arising dependent on other things. We lock into our concepts and think, yeah, that's the way it is. Right? So this is a 12 links. Everybody got it? No, it's, it's a curious old rune. It's really hard to keep the 12 links in mind. It is a good insight practice to memorize the 12 links. And then after you're well concentrated to recite the 12 links to yourself and then start examining each of these links, trying to understand what's going on there. I suggest you memorize them if you're going to do so in the so-called reverse order, starting with old age, sickness and death as arises dependent on birth, arises dependent on clinging, arises dependent on craving, arises dependent on Vedna, arises dependent on sense contact, etc. Okay, because it's going to make a lot more sense and you're going to be looking at it in terms of necessary conditions rather than causes. If you try and go in the so-called forward order, you'll get lost in causes and that's not what it's about. So, if we want to interpret the 12 links, what have we got? What have we got here? I mean, you know, got the other stuff thrown in. What's the orthodox interpretation of the 12 links? Well, the orthodox Buddhist interpretation of the 12 links is found in the Vasudhimaga. Vasudhimaga is a commentary it was composed in the 5th century AD, so we're talking 800 years after the Buddha, in Sri Lanka. And the orthodox understanding of dependent origination is the three lives model. That the 12 links of dependent origination describe three lifetimes. In your previous life, you were ignorant. And so uh, you created karmic formations. And then you died there, and now you've been reborn. And in this life, you have a consciousness and a mind and body, which has senses, which gets sense contacts, which produce Vedna. And if you're not careful, it produces craving and clinging. And because one of the things you're clinging to is being alive, when you die in this life, 
you'll have becoming birth and death in your next life. That's the orthodox understanding. There are, <clears throat> well, there are numerous problems with this understanding. I think I wrote down five problems with it in my book. Uh, you can look it up. Uh, one of them is that there are many suttas that say with the ceasing of ignorance is the ceasing of sankharas. With the ceasing of sankharas is the ceasing of consciousness. With the ceasing of consciousness all the way up to with the ceasing of birth, the ceasing of old age, sickness, and death. So old age, sickness, and death is dukkha. You want to get rid of the dukkha. Then in your previous life, uproot the ignorance. Uh, how are you going to do that? You probably don't even remember your previous life, let alone have any ability to go back and change your previous life. This is a logical error that the Buddha would not make. The Buddha is one of the world's greatest geniuses. And so he wouldn't be teaching about uprooting ignorance in your previous life. Now, the usual way out of that is people say, oh, it's all three happening at the same time. The ignorance in this life is for the six links in your next life, and, and then the dukkha will end in the life after that. But the Buddha is teaching the end of dukkha in this life. So, yeah, the move of trying to say they're all three lives happening simultaneously doesn't work either. It leads to even more contradictions. The Buddha also says that the Dhamma is visible here and now. And so if the Dhamma is equivalent to dependent origination, dependent origination should be visible here and now. How visible is your previous life and, and your next life? Uh, yeah, that doesn't work either. On a scale of one to a hundred, I give the three lives interpretation of dependent origination exactly a zero. I don't think that's what the Buddha was talking about. There's not a single sutta that I know of that would lead to a three lives interpretation, unless you just start ignoring what some of the words mean. There is a sutta that gives you a two lives interpretation, possibly. Okay, but a three lives, no. Dependent origination is about paying attention to what's happening with your sensory input. You're going to experience Vedana. Don't get caught in craving and clinging because those are a setup for dukkha. All right. So this is the links of dependent origination. This is, well, the original six links. And then I talked about the most common recension of the 12 links. There are other links of dependent origination found in the suttas that are actually fairly important. So in the chat, I'm going to put some links. These are uh, internet links, not dependent origination links. The first one I just stuck in there is transcendental dependent origination. Transcendental dependent origination has 24 links. And the internet link I gave you is to Bhikkhu Bodhi's commentary on the Upanisa Sutta, which is Samyutta Nikaya uh, 12.23. Okay, 
And it talks not only about the 12 links that we discuss, but the way out of this. Basically, it's when you've had enough dukkha, you start looking around for some way out. You find a path and you have enough confidence in that path, you start following it. And then basically, you learn to concentrate your mind and investigate reality and gain enough insight into the nature of reality that you become disenchanted with the things that you were formerly enchanted by. And by disenchanted, I mean the spell is broken. You are no longer enchanted by whatever it is you're enchanted by. And then you become dispassionate about it. And dispassion really means your mind is not colored. Uh, you see someone wearing the colors of your enemy football team, and you immediately know that's a terrible person, right? Your mind is colored by your support for your football team, right? Your mind is no longer colored. That's what dispassion means. And with your mind no longer colored, yeah, no craving and clinging, no dukkha. So, yeah, take a look at Bhikkhu Bodhi's commentary on the Upanisha Sutta at some point. Definitely worth look to having a look at. And then the second thing I'm putting here is a talk I gave to London Insight about a year ago on the Honeyball Sutta. The Honeyball Sutta is Middle Length Discourse number 18. It's a really important sutta. It's a difficult sutta, so yeah, uh, you might want to listen to that talk. But if you get the book that I wrote on Dependent Origination and Emptiness, this is the whole chapter on the Honeyball Sutta and the talk uh, that I just, the link I just put from Dharma Seed is my talk on that chapter. So these are also links of dependently arising phenomena. And they're not the 12 links that we're usually familiar with.